0: Okay, well I heard today that we have about 85 or 86 registrations for the pastor's conference. I mentioned that to Dr. Meissner and he said, Oh, that's going to be fun because usually half the registrations come in the last week. <laughs> so it will be a, a challenge, and uh, but we are... Uh, going to enjoy between now and the time the conference comes, you can really enjoy that extra space you have between your knee and the row in front of you. But uh, we are ordering some more chairs, which we ended up putting so many up here and in the back rooms and everywhere that the original goal is to try to have about 150 to 160 seats down on the floor. And we don't have that. So there's plenty of room. We're not going to crunch you up too much. But one thing we had to decide today was that we're not going to set up tables. We have these half tables to, that we were going to set up for the men, so they put their laptops there and a cup of coffee. And we're not going to be able to do that because there won't be room for half tables in here. So that solves another logistical problem of t- tearing down and setting up every every night. But uh, it's there's a lot of excitement stirring, so... I, you need to pray for all the logistics that we get everything worked out and taken care of, but it will be a tremendous conference. Also, there is a sign-up sheet. continues to be a sign-up sheet out in the foyer for people to sign up. Make sure you're on our call list in case there's a need to cancel class at the last minute due to inclement weather or uh, any any unforeseen circumstance that it rises and then don't forget the annual congregational meeting will be on the 26th uh, a week from this coming Sunday February 26th immediately following the uh, morning service Okay, well before we begin this evening let's make sure we're in fellowship so we'll uh, take a few moments to have silent prayer so you can use 1 John 1 9 if necessary then uh, I will open in prayer let's pray Lord, again, we're indeed grateful that we can gather together as a body of believers to study your word, that we as believers, as we grow and advance in the spiritual life, offer a testimony before the angels as to your grace, your goodness, and sufficiency of the work of Christ, sufficiency of your word, and sufficiency of your grace. Father, as we study your word this evening, we pray that we can be encouraged and challenged, strengthened in our spiritual life, that we might be reminded of the fact that we have been saved for a purpose, And that purpose is not limited to our witness in time, but also our responsibilities in the future. We pray that you would challenge us this evening. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Genesis 26. Genesis 26. We're in a chapter tonight that may, may feel to some of you like deja vu. In fact, the obvious parallels between Genesis 26, and Genesis 12, and Genesis 21 have led the liberals, of course, the liberals always have to assume the worst. They always have to start from the presupposition that the Bible, of course, could never have been revealed by God because just, of course, by definition, he can't do that. See, that's their starting point. They never tell you that. When you watch those shows on the Discovery Channel and A&E and the History Channel and they're going to all these uh, alleged experts on theology you should know that none of them are conservatives only on a rare exception do they ever interview anybody that believes that the word of God was breathed out by God is inspired by God and is the inerrant infallible word of God and so you hear all these opinions of man that are ultimately designed to be subtle attacks on the reliability and the truthfulness of the Scripture. And one of the well-known assaults and attacks that does come across quite frequently occurs in the book of Genesis that there's oh all these uh, repetitive stories that just come up and they, they're here and then they're repeated again. And those those Jews who are whoever wrote uh, Genesis just wasn't bright enough to realize that he was they were just introducing uh, variations of the same story in again and again, which is a real insult to any human writer that uh, would write anything that they would, ju- if, if they were compiling from different sources, which is the allegation, that uh, they wouldn't be bright enough to realize they were just repeating the same story two or three times. So I think that if anybody had a couple of brain cells that uh, frequently waved at each other, that they would recognize that, that there's an inherent flaw in the liberal agenda. So we come to Genesis chapter 26 and we have a, a similar episode in the life of Isaac to what we have seen twice in his father's life. The acorn doesn't fall too far from the tree, it seems, or to use another cliche, it's just to chip off the old block, but what we see here is an interesting trend that continues generationally from father to son. Now, the main theme in Genesis 26, which is the same one we saw in the similar episodes relating to his father Abraham, has to do with the testing of our faith, that this is the same principle God uses and has used ever since the creation of man for spiritual growth. We can't avoid it. We're living in a we're living in a fallen world. We live with uh, fallen spouses. We have to deal with fallen children and fallen parents and uh, fallen politicians and and governments that that uh, operate on uh, operate with fallen corrupt individuals and this is the way it always has been. The way it always will be until Jesus Christ returns and it is in the midst of that cosmic system with not only the overt uh, antagonism of a world of the worldly system and the opposition of fallen creatures but also within the overall structure of the angelic conflict that God allows believers to continue to live after salvation so that there will be these challenges to the doctrine that's in their soul to give them opportunities to trust God, to rely upon Him, and God uses that to produce spiritual growth. The principles are laid out in a couple of key passages in the New Testament, which I want to remind you of because these are great promises, great principles that we constantly need to face. There's not one person in here that hasn't faced some kind of test, whether it was a small test or a large test, but hasn't faced some kind of test within the last five or six hours, I would suggest unless you just happen to be asleep this afternoon. James 1, my brethren, count it all joy. That's the overriding command in the introduction to James' epistle. I just love James. Count it all joy when you fall into various kinds of tests because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now, there's two key words there that are both translated with this idea of test. The first word is the word perasmos, uh, which has to do with, it's usually translated temptation, but I translate it test. It is an opportunity to apply doctrine or to try to handle the situation from your own, the resources of your own sin nature. I mean, that just brings it down to to... The bald facts. Every time we have a situation where you have a choice between handling it by relying upon God and using one of the uh, stress busters, applying uh, principles or promises, faith, rest, drill, grace orientation, doctrinal orientation, uh, a, personal, a sense of eternal destiny, personal love for God, and personal love for all mankind... Uh, Perfect happiness, occupation with Christ, any of those, any time that you're faced with a decision, you like uh, that you have to choose between handling it from one of those resources or your own sin nature. That's a test. It may not seem like a test to you. It may just seem like like some jerk just cut you off in traffic, but that's a test as to your mental attitude, as to how how you're going to respond. Uh, All of these various things bring that to bear. So we have to go through these myriad forms of tests. And the worst tests, it seems to me, maybe they're just my sin nature. I don't know about yours. You probably have better sin natures than mine. But it's the people tests that aggravate me the most. You know, I just can't understand why they can't figure it out. The testing of your faith and the word for faith there isn't the idea or the use of the word pistis there isn't the idea of trust. It's the idea of what you believe, that which you are trusting. It is a testing not of the fact that can I trust or not. It's the issue of what are you trusting in. It's a testing of the body of doctrine that is now uh, resident in your soul because you've been coming to Bible class and learning all these wonderful principles. So, when you fall into various kinds of tests because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now, I know we have days when we aren't so sure that that produces endurance. We just feel like, like it, that that boulder that's, that's, you know, that scene in, in, in Indiana Jones and... Um, what was the first one? Indiana Jones and the, what was that first one called? Uh, the Ark of the Covenant. And that opening scene where he goes into that, uh, that, that cavern in Peru and then when he's escaping there's this big boulder that's, that's released that's rolling down behind him. Now most, most of the time I feel like I'm about to get squashed by that boulder. But the idea is that as we go forward it produces endurance so that if we're consistent then we gradually begin to grow and it becomes easier. And as endurance develops, which is the Greek word hupomone, which means persistence or or ongoing uh, obedience. It has to do with a a staying under the pressure. Now, that's not good news for many people. They don't want to stay under the pressure. They want to get away from the pressure, get away from that, that adversity. But hupomone has its root in the word minnow, the verb "meno" meaning to abide or to remain, and hupa is the prefix there that's the preposition that means under. So it means to remain under or in those circumstances, but you're able to handle the circumstances with a relaxed mental attitude, with joy, with happiness, with impersonal love for people, because you're focused on God and not on the circumstances. You're not going to be like Peter and look at the waves. You're going to be uh, like Peter when he was, had his focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. So endurance has a mature production. It's a process, and it produces maturity. The result is that you are mature and complete, lacking nothing. That's To me, that's one of the greatest principles in the Word, that we can have joy because we know something. It's just that we forget what we know and sometimes we just don't let the Holy Spirit remind us. One Peter one six and seven states it in a slightly different way. Peter says, "In this, that is what I'm about to say, you greatly rejoice." Now, on a good day, I know that's true for most of us. That when when we're focused on the Lord, we do rejoice. But it's not all. It only happens after we've had that morning cup of tea or cup of coffee. In this, you greatly rejoice. Now, now for a little while, if need be. You have been grieved by various trials. And the word there for grief actually is the word that expresses sorrow or grief. It is an emotional response to the testing. And that happens at times Is we just feel uh, overrun. And if tests go on for a long time, if we don't focus on the Lord, it can have a, a physically debilitating effect and you know what I mean You just it just wears you out you're just tired you, you, your mind is always focusing on this problem this adversity whatever it is you you worry with it you chew on it rather than just relax and let the Lord take care of it we keep letting that uh, come into the forefront of our thinking and so it wears us down and we are overwrought by these various trials tests that, that come our way but there's a purpose, and that's expressed in one Peter one seven. That we rejoice, even though we are emotionally wrung out by these tests, that the genuineness and the idea there is the 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 health the the, the, the certainty of our faith, the wholeness of our faith, being much more precious than gold. That perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that, again, it is not uh, the act of believing or trusting here, it is the body of doctrine, that purity, the wholeness of the body of doctrine that is resident in our soul, is then exposed when we go through these tests, and its exposure results in the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ that is when he returns at the rapture and takes us to be with him in the clouds in the air and takes us to the great uh, to the uh, judgment seat of Christ now the same same words are used here in 1 Peter as in James 1 the trials is the same word peirasmos that we have over in James 1 that I translated testing earlier so we are it's the test that can wear us down that the genuineness of your faith, though it is tested, and that's the word, um, the word genuineness has the word, the, the, the proof, the demonstration of the value of your faith. It is the noun form of daqui, dakimas, which is used also by James. And the test by fire is the verb form of that, docimazo. Both have to do with the idea of revealing or exposing that which has value that which is uh, significant, that which is the gold, silver, and precious stones, as opposed to the wood, hay, and straw. So every believer advances spiritually by having the doctrine in their soul tested. None of us are any better than anybody else, and we have to go through it. And I'm convinced that God in his omniscience knows exactly which areas of testing each one of us needs. He knows where your weaknesses are. He can push your buttons better than anybody else. And that's exactly what's going to happen. So it's interesting now uh, we just came out of prayer meeting. It's interesting to go through the prayer requests and look at the different uh, health problems or other things that folks face in, in life and realize that so, some folks, you know, you just sit there and you look at them and they don't seem to sail through And they never have any health problems. But we don't know what goes on at work. We don't know what goes on with their children. We don't know a lot of things about folks. You can sit here in Bible class and you can look across the room and you see somebody that you have seen for 15, 20, 30 years and you know them and you think, boy, they just have it all together. There's not a problem in their life. What I've discovered is that's not true for anybody. Everybody's got some serious adversity that that the Lord's taken them through at one point or another. So we need to uh, recognize we all go through it. Isaac went through the same thing uh, in the Old Testament. Now, great promise is that God has provided everything we need to handle those tests. Everything. In the New Testament, we have the completed canon of Scripture. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have the filling ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit empowers us in a number of ways to handle the problems, and he empowers us through the Word. So there is a dynamic that we have today that they didn't have in the Old Testament, that, that Abraham didn't have, that Isaac didn't have, that Jacob didn't have, that Moses didn't have, and that is this ministry of God and the Holy Spirit, and that's part of what makes the church age unique. But there's something they didn't have. Of course, we have the completed canon of Scripture as well. And that is that they had God who would appear to them and give them revelation on the spot to interpret the, some of the things that they went through. So even though there are advantages that we have, and certainly the spiritual life of the church age is much more, uh, uh, much more powerful than the spiritual life they had in the Old Testament because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, they had some dynamics at work there that people today don't have. And this is something that that, uh, uh, you have folks like the Charismatics and Pentecostals always come along and they, they want to force God in a box and say he always has to operate the way he's always operated. So today he has to do that as well. So they're always looking for some sort of special revelation from God and they don't understand the dispensational distinctives. What I always find is amusing is that... Every time I've gotten in a debate with a charismatic or Pentecostal, they always say I'm the one who's putting God in a box because I won't let God uh, do miracles or speak help people speak in tongues today or anything like that, when the reality is they're the ones who put God in a box because they won't let God operate in any dispensation any other way than the way he's done in other dispensations. So God can't, if God did it, If the first hundred times God did something, he did it one way, then that means that the hundred and first time he has to do it the same way. And that's just not true. God has different purposes that he is working out in each dispensation. So what he is doing with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob must be interpreted within God's plan and purposes for calling out a new people to function as the... As the, the 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 custodians of the word of God and the grace of God in the in the world during the Old Testament. Now, one of the great promises is First Corinthians ten thirteen. No temptation, same word perosmos, no testing, has overtaken you except such as is common to man. That means we all go through these same types. These same categories of tests, the Lord Jesus Christ went though, through those same categories of tests, and he learned obedience through the things that He suffered. We're studying that in Hebrews chapter four, or chapter five. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tested beyond what you are able. That's the principle of the sovereignty of God, no matter what you and I go through. God is always faithful. He overrides. He is as, as intimately involved in your life as he is with somebody's life on the other side of the planet. And with every other Christian, he never falls asleep. He never gets distracted. He never never says, oops, I'm paying too much attention to the uh, uh, Iraq war over here. I forgot about you for a second. That never happens. He is completely 100% focused on every believer. No one has any more or any less of his attention. So he will not allow us to be tested beyond what we are able. And that ability relates to two things. It relates to the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Because we have the Spirit of God who indwells us and fills us with the Word of God, we all have capacities related to that potential. And that's true for every believer. And that is why the next phrase is true, that with the testing, he makes the way of escape. What's the, the way of escape doesn't mean you get out from under it. Remember, the principle is you have to stay under it with manet. You stay under it. So it's not a way to escape to get away from it, but to be able to bear it. And how are you able to bear it? Because you know the principles of doctrine that come from the Word of God. You know how to walk with the Spirit of God. So that enables you to handle the testing that God brings into your life. Second Peter 1, 3, and 4 reiterates the sufficiency of His grace as His divine power is given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Life is bios, related to the physical, logistical needs. Godliness is usabea, which... For all for, for our purposes, it really means spirituality. It is that which produces god likeness. Well, remember the goal of uh, the Christian growth is to be christ like that God is creating in us the image of Christ, his character, and what is that that's a spiritual life that's how you move from you sabaea to The concept of spirituality there. God likeness is to develop in us the character of Jesus Christ. And it comes through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been given, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these, that is those promises, you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, So God has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. This is the sufficiency of Scripture. And even though in the Old Testament they didn't have a completed canon, God tested them only in relationship to what they had been given. So that the test that we saw in Abraham's life, and we went through all 13 tests that God took Abraham through in his in his road from immaturity to maturity, those tests were all related to what? The Abrahamic covenant. What are the three key things in the Abrahamic covenant? Everybody needs to know this. Land, seed, and blessing. You know, I'm beginning to get this through. to. I got a new class this semester at, at, down at the college, and I'm trying to get this through to them again. And so we just have these repetition sessions. Okay, say it after me. We go over and over. It's land, seed, and blessing. Every one of those tests that Abraham went through was related in some way to the revelation he gave in Genesis 12 that he was going to give Abraham a land, that there was going to be a multiplicity of descendants, and he would be a worldwide blessing. And the same thing is true when we come to Isaac, and we come to Genesis chapter 26, because at the beginning of this, Isaac is faced with a problem, an adversity, Then there is a revelation from God, which is a reaffirmation of the Abrahamic covenant. And what are the three elements? Land, seed, and blessing. But the key element here is land, and he starts to get tested in relationship to the land. And he has the same kind of problems that his daddy had, that he wants to try to solve the problem on his own, and he starts to head to Egypt, but God stopped him. And he ends up staying in in Gerar in uh, Philistia, but then he does the same thing his daddy did. He just said, well, I'm afraid that they're going to want to take my wife away from me. And there must have been a terrible problem with this in the ancient world because Abraham and Isaac both are awfully scared that their 60 to 80-year-old wives are going to be taken. Now, these must have been some beautiful women. that at the age of uh, 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 of about 60 to 70 for, for Rebecca and probably 80 to 90, that, that they were afraid that the men, but remember they lived a long time too, so there's, that's probably, uh, they were quite young at 60 to 70. Anyhow, before I get myself in too much trouble... <laughs> There is a famine in the land isaiah uh, uh, genesis twenty six one This is our presenting problem now there hasn't been a famine in the land there hasn't been this form of an external adversity since genesis chapter twelve that's a, that's uh, almost a hundred years earlier now these famines were were incredible we We read that uh, back in Genesis 18 19 when it was talking about Sodom and Gomorrah and I guess it was Genesis uh, first mention was in Genesis 13 14 when uh, Abraham gave Lot the option you know, take, take whatever land you want and Lot surveyed all the land and he, and he wanted the land down in the valley because that was the most beautiful part of all the land the land around the Dead Sea because it was well watered like all the territory all the way down to Egypt now I haven't been to Sinai I haven't walked that land but I've seen pictures of it and it's not well watered today but it was well watered then and it was a beautiful area which indicates that the climate was quite different Uh, they've had a little global warming I guess since then and now it's all desert but back at that time there there was a difference and creationist meteorologists Uh, have created various computer models which would indicate that following the flood, which was only about five or six hundred years prior to this, that following the flood there were a multiplicity of ice ages. They happened every uh, forty or fifty years as opposed to being spread out by thousands of years and so you had these rapid cycles of warming and cooling on the planet and so if you have an ice cap that comes halfway down into Europe then you're going to create a pretty a temperate zone around the equator and it's not going to be a dry area. But then when you go through another cycle of warm-up where the ice cap is retreating, then you're going to get uh, true global warming in, in around the uh, equator and this is going to produce drought and famine and this is the kind of thing that they were experiencing that would fit that particular model. So even though the scriptures don't make a a big issue out of these famines when you think about them within the framework of meteorology and climate change and what had happened just previous to this in terms of the Noahic flood it makes sense it fits a creationist model uh, based on the Bible that there was a worldwide cataclysm that covered the face of the earth for uh, well over uh, seven months and the, the, the ramifications of that would have been uh, quite remarkable. Now, they were on the ark for a little over a year, but the water covered everything. For, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Then the waters continued to rise for another 110 days, and then they prevailed for another 100, 100 days or so. So it was uh, it created quite a shift. It's like if you took a boulder and dropped it into a pool of still water, and you had the waves that come off of that, that the closer you are to the point of impact, the greater the distance between the top of the wave and the bottom of the wave, and the closer the waves are to each other. But the further you get away from that point of impact, the less distance there is in the waves, they tend to smooth out, and the further distance there is between the different waves. And if you think of climate in that way, that you have this massive impact with the Noahic flood that just reverberates through the climate. And initially, as the climate is adjusting to a possibly a, a shift of the Earth's axis, many other things that are supposed to have happened, that initially there would have been this rapid cycling of climate change from cooling to heating. But the further you get away from that point of impact, the more it would level off so the climate change that we see today from the cooling that occurred in the uh late middle ages and then the and now uh, an alleged warm up we don't know yet we don't have enough historical distance to see if this is a true warming period these are just the results that go back to the flood these are normative they're not the result of the fact that you've been you use too much uh, aerosol deodorant when you were younger There's a famine in the land, besides the first famine, that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. So in a very abbreviated statement, we're told what the problem is. And Isaac heads to Gerar, which is part of the land, but at this time is occupied by the Philistines. Now these are the same Philistines that we see later on in the book of Judges and during the time of David but they really haven't established their their full base of operations this isn't the land of the Philistines yet there's just a few uh, settlements that have been started here the Philistines came from the Isle of Crete and so this is just some of the, uh, the this is from the initial wave that occurred during the time of the patriarchs And if and at this time I'm going to sh- try to find my map and go to the end of, end slide here. There we go. That Isaac has been living in this area near, uh, near Hebron and he heads over here. Gerar is over in this area near the coast and this would be the route of travel to head over to the coast and then southeast along the coast of the Mediterranean to head towards Egypt. So he is headed in the same direction that his father took to head towards Egypt, which apparently was not suffering from uh, this famine and this, this drought. So the, he goes to Abimelech in Gerar, who's the leader of the Philistines. Abimelech is not his name. Abimelech is a title like Pharaoh or Caesar. Abimelech literally means my father is king. And this would not be the same person that Abraham dealt with who was called Abimelech uh, because of the time difference. It's possible that uh, we'll run into one of his generals later on. That's possible because if they were living 160, 170 years, and this is only a 60-year difference, I think there is a possibility that uh, he could be the same person. Maybe not, but it doesn't have to be. These names could be titles. uh, They could be family names. Uh, We've had several generals in our armies that have had generational uh, military careers, so that's not out of the ordinary. So the Lord appeared to Isaac in verse 2, said, Do not go down into Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. So here we see that God appears in a theophany. So this is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ who appears to him because according to John one eighteen. No one has seen the Father at any time. The only begotten is the one who reveals him. So this isn't God the Father. This is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ who appears to him and makes uh, eight statements. Eight statements directing directed to uh, Isaac. He says, first of all, don't go down to Egypt. So he blocks his escape down to Egypt. Uh, so apparently Isaac was headed to solve a problem the same way his father did. It's amazing how there can be these similarities between generations. Don't go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. So that's the command is to stay in the land. And then he is going to expound upon that and define that for him. He says, stay in the land. Then he says, "Dwell in the land," and the next verse, which is a command. It's a key word that is used throughout the uh, patriarchal stories. Uh, the word, the Hebrew word, gur, g-u-r, which just means to be a, a dweller there, to live there, to be. Sometimes it's translated to be a sojourner, but it has that idea of taking up residence and staying in the land. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you. So there's four things said so far. One, don't go to Egypt. Two, stay in the land. Three, sojourn in the land. And four, I will be with you. This indicates what comes next, which is that the aspect of divine blessing, that God is going to be with him. God will protect him. God will watch over him. And the fifth statement he makes is, I will uh, bless you. And this, of course, goes back to to the... promise of the Abrahamic covenant which is about to be reconfirmed with Isaac for to you and your descendants I give all these lands so let's uh, let's look at what we have here we have five things that are said so far don't go to Egypt stay in the land sojourn in the land I will be with you I will bless you and sixth to you and your seed I will establish the covenant I made with Abraham so he, it, he clearly states that he is reestablishing with Isaac and his descendants the covenant he made with Abraham. And the seventh thing he does is he reminds Isaac what the stipulations of the covenant are that he made with Abraham. One, I will multiply your seed. Two, I will uh, give your seed the land. And three, all the nations, all the goyim, will be blessed. So the seventh thing that he does is to rehearse the three provisions of the Abrahamic covenant. And then the eighth thing that he says in verse 5 is that this is related to Abraham, because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my, my law. So he says five things, and these are uh, roughly synonyms, but by stating it this way, he, he leaves no room for escape. He sort of surrounds Isaac with the reality of Abraham's total devotion and obedience to God. He says he obeyed my voice and that's that stands for what he said when he spoke. He obeyed my voice and kept my charge. The word there for charge let me go back to a previous slide here is the Hebrew word shamar it's a form of it he says at the beginning here uh, Abraham obeyed my voice the word for obey is the verb shamar meaning to keep to guard to observe or to exercise great care over something he he and from there has that concept of obedience now notice that word shamar you see the main consonants there are an sh an M and an R well when Hebrew wants to take a verb and convert it to a noun or a participle it puts an M in the front of it see it's the same consonants he just puts an M in front of it and that's the word for charge so the the word for keeping or obeying is related to the word charge you obeyed what I commanded you to do in and, and essence is what he's saying and then he uses the next word commandments mitzvah this is the same word that's used over in relationship to the commandments of the law. Mitzvah basically means commandments, mandates. And then the uh, fifth phrase that he uses here, my statutes, hulk, These are the specific stipulations contained or ordinances sometimes is how it's translated, contained within God's mandates. And this this isn't related to the Mosaic law. Mosaic law doesn't come along for another Uh, another uh, 400 years but this is the same verbiage that's used so we can speak of the mandates of scripture the prohibitions and the positive commands as the law of God in a generic sense these are uh, instantiations or representations or uh, specific mandates that relate to his righteousness then the last phrase is the word laws laws now, this isn't the law, the Mosaic law, that hasn't been given yet, but it relates to any command of God. And the word Torah has the basic meaning of instruction. Instruction has the idea of being on target, not just getting on the paper, but being in the in the circle, in the center, being on target. And incidentally, the word for sin is to miss the mark. So these are... Uh, related to one another Torah has to do with God's instruction on how to hit the bullseye and when you you sin you're just not even on the paper you're not even anywhere near the target so those are the two ideas you're either in the bullseye or you're completely off the target there's no in between when it comes to the scriptures so Abraham completely obeyed God this is the representation God makes to Isaac and as a result of that grace covenant that God made with Abraham God is now going to continue to make that with Isaac as his seed so this is a reaffirmation of the Abrahamic covenant and the result is given in verse 6 so Isaac dwelt in Gerar he doesn't go on he's going to stay there but he has a problem now he has a test and the test is related to the environment and the people around him and he is fearful so he has uh, he, he starts thinking about his situation and in verse 7 the men of the place asked about his wife just identification purposes but he apparently has the same paranoid streak that his father had and so he's afraid to say that she's his wife because he's afraid that they're going to kill him, somebody's going to steal her, and he's going to lose her. So he, instead of relaxing and trusting in God, and the provision that God has just made, notice here, on the one hand, you have this uh, theophany, this revelation of God, specific promise given to you. And remember, this is Isaac, who was taken up Moriah by his father as a sacrifice. So he's not a stranger to God's working and he's heard all the stories handed down by his parents and yet he still falls back on his own self-reliance instead of God dependence and he lies about his wife and it came to pass when he had been there a long time we don't now know how long but several months uh, maybe uh, even a year that Abimelech king of the Philistines looked through a window and saw and there was Isaac it was typical that the king's palace the Hekal was higher than any other building any other residence in the the town the city or the village and so Abimelech could look down on everything from the vantage point of his roof and he saw that Isaac was showing endearment to Rebekah his wife they're making out in the courtyard and so it was obvious that that the relationship between the two of them was more than just uh, a relationship of a brother and a sister. So Abimelech uh, invited him to appear before his uh, throne and said, obviously she's your wife, so how can you call her a sister? So Isaac has to admit that he was afraid that he would be killed, and so... Abimelech demonstrates that even as an unbeliever, he has, seems to have, and the same thing is true of his father, seems to have a higher moral sensitivity than either Abraham or Isaac. Now, the Holy Spirit's making a point here. If you ask the question, why are we told about this, and why are we told about these same kinds of things with Abraham, it is to show that there was nothing special about Abraham or Isaac that... Uh, brought about God's favor. They were corrupt sinners, and they were flawed, and they had serious problems, and they had to grow spiritually just like the rest of us do, and they were in their position solely by the grace of God, not because there was anything in them that was attractive uh, to God. So even the uh, unbeliever, the pagan unbeliever, has a higher moral sensitivity than Isaac does, and he said, you could have... You could have brought great harm to all of my people because they would have been guilty of adultery and they wouldn't have known it. And so he shows a sensitivity here to the moral situation that is totally past uh, Isaac. And Abimelech then uh, passes a, a mandate to his people that anyone who touches this man or his wife—see—he's going to deal with the fear factor in his uh, proclamation, which shows that he was a man of foresight and wisdom as well. He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to get put to death. So here Isaac fails, just as Abraham failed, and in the midst of that failure, what happens next? God blesses. Isaac. Is that because Isaac was so obedient and consistent and growing spiritually? No, he'd just been a big fat failure. But see, this is God's blessing of Abraham and Isaac doesn't have anything to do with their obedience. This is one of the problems that we have today is that we have been guilty of distorting the whole concept of blessing. It's such an overused and misused term today, and you hear it. All the time, even on the lips of unbelievers who have no idea what it what it means, blessing refers to the provision of inner happiness and stability for a believer for any individual, and it may be physical, financial, and it may be spiritual. We can be blessed because God gives us testing and adversity that gives us the tremendous opportunity to trust him, to apply doctrine, and to grow spiritual. What a blessing adversity can be but what we have today is a is a culture that is so material oriented that we think of blessing only in terms of dollar signs only in terms of what kind of car you drive what kind of house you live in what kind of furniture you have and that's how people define define blessing and we live in a world where people want to use Jesus just to further their own agenda. You look at numerous churches today who have all bought into this uh, prosperity theology or the health and wealth gospel. It goes by various other names, name it and claim it. But basically what they've done is to uh, shift the gospel and the teaching of the scripture around so that God becomes just sort of a magic genie. And if you say the right words, if you if you rub his lamp the right way, you express the same formula of prayer, the prayer of Jabez or whatever it is, then God will respond a certain way and he will then give you financial blessings and health. And this is what attracts people. They look at, you know, it's all great and fine to talk about God and go to church as long as I'm going to get something out of it and I can utilize God to further my own agenda so that 's the problem today and the, that we have, and the the harsh reality is it just isn 't true and so many people who are truly seeking the truth and hope they 're worshiping God run into a brick wall in their life because sooner or later it doesn 't work and just i 've often wondered how the health and wealth gospel can fly in a place like the like the uh, former Soviet Union where people just aren't going to get real prosperous unless they're incredibly corrupt or how does it work in an environment where you're a believer living in a Muslim land if you're a Christian in Saudi Arabia uh, the health and wealth gospel just isn't going to work you can't you can't name it and claim it and exercise dominion over all those uh, Muslim clerics it just doesn't work when it gets to real life the, and and what happens is they often go to passages like this and they take them out of context to show how God is blessing them and that Abraham and Isaac just knew that secret. You know, they just knew the, the secret prayer, the secret password, the secret code to get God to bless them. And if we learn that too, then we can go that way too. It's a, it's just another form of Gnosticism. But the reality is God's blessing for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has nothing to do with who they are or what they've done. And that's the point. It has everything to do with his promise in the Abrahamic covenant. And that's the same thing that's true for believers in the church age. God's promise of blessing to us is based on our position in Christ. So that Paul says in Ephesians one three, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's already happened. It's not something we have to learn how to tap into. It's not something that we have to learn the secret Code prayer in order to uh, have God shower these blessings upon us. It has already happened. It all happened at the point of salvation, when we were identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. And all these things are given to us at the instant of our salvation. The issue is spiritual growth, developing capacity for blessing, so that we we eventually experience these as we grow and advance. It has to do with the sovereign purpose of God and not what we do. It has to do with possession of the perfect righteousness of Christ. It is that righteousness that's the basis for blessing, not what we do. So here we see God blessing Abraham because of his previous promise. He is going to demonstrate something. I mean, uh, blessing Isaac. He's going to demonstrate something through Isaac. That culminates at the end of the chapter because it's at the end of the chapter that that the uh, Philistines, that Abimelech comes to to Isaac and says, "God is obviously blessing you. We want to enter into a contract with you so that we can experience the blessing by association." And so God is going to develop uh, Isaac's wealth in verse. Uh, 13 we, or verse 12 we read that he sowed in the land but he reaped a hundredfold now that's he worked hard he wasn't a socialist he didn't sit back and say okay we're just going to pray for God to somehow strike us with blessing he worked hard he planted the seed but God is the one who brought the increase and God blessed him and there was a hundredfold increase and then verse 13 the man began to prosper now if he was Abraham's heir Abraham was one of the richest men in the world He's really getting wealthy. This is like Bill Gates' son quadrupling his inheritance. I mean, he's, just, he's becoming extremely wealthy. For he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants. And what happens when God begins to bless you? As a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you already have these blessings, so what's going to happen? you're going to be the object of attack. You're going to become the object of a satanic attack in the angelic conflict. You're going to be the object, if you're growing and advancing as a believer, and it's obvious that God is blessing you. Now, that can be through physical, financial, material means, or it can be just soul blessing. You may not have two nickels to rub together, but it doesn't bother you. You go through health crises, you go through family crises, and people around you notice that you handle that in a relaxed manner, trusting God, and what's their response? They don't like it. Why aren't you all upset and fragmented like I am? And so they begin to envy you. They begin to express jealousy, and you come under attack, and this happens to all of us. There's small-minded people out there who are jealous of the fact that God seems to be blessing us, that no matter... Uh, what the circumstances may be, we really don't get ruffled because we're relaxed and trusting in God and we're like the Apostle Paul uh, whether I've, who said, uh, I have learned to abound and I have learned to do without. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So here's a case where Isaac is becoming physically and materially prosperous and the Philistines envy him. So what do they do? Typical response of uh, the carnal mind. They're going to run him out of town. So they stop up all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, and they filled him with earth. This is one of the first redistribution of wealth procedures in history. If they stop up all of his wells, then he's going to have to sell off his, his uh, some of his sheep and his goats and his camels. And he'll have to sell them at cut rate prices. So it's a it's a redistribution of wealth uh, process here. He has too much, so we're going to make sure he has to get rid of it. And then there, and Abimelech then came to him and said, "Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we are." Now here he's going through people testing. He's being unjustly criticized. He's being attacked. He's being ridiculed. He's the victim of sins of the tongue. People are angry at him. People uh, are uh, abusing him verbally. And how does he handle it? He leaves. He shows grace orientation. He goes through a threefold stage of leaving. He leaves town. He goes to the valley of Gerar, and he dwelt there. And again, he dug the wells of water which they had dug in the days of Abraham his father. Now, why is he doing that? He's reasserting his right to these wells. He's going to redig dig the wells, and he's going to uh, and these wells he's going to name with the same names that his father called them. He's indicating that he has uh, the right of ownership here. And his servants dug in the valley, and they found a well of running water there. They found an Artesian well, but the herdsmen of Gerar are following him. See, this is typical of the small-minded carnal minded antagonist is they're just going to continue to pursue the object of their blame that they've said they've identified this person as a source of all their misery and their unhappiness and so they go after Isaac and they say no this water is ours and he named the well Esic, which is a word play on the Hebrew word Asak which means a quarrel or a dispute or contention so he names this place uh, the well of quarreling. Then they dug another well. So he moves on. He's not going to put up a fight. He just relaxes. It's their problem. It's not his problem. He moves to the next well. Digs another well and they follow him and they quarrel over that one. Um, and so they call it, he calls it Sitna. Which means accusation. So they're continuing to assault him verbally uh, through the sins of the tongue. And he moves again and goes to a third well, but they've run out of gas now and they don't quarrel over it. He calls that one Rehoboth, which means a place that is wide, broad, or spacious. So this is finally he has, he can relax because he is not being pursued by, by the Philistines. Now we've been able to locate that on a, on a map. And it is about 18 miles south of Beersheba, right in this general uh, vicinity. If you can see that map down to the south, those of you in the back can't see that too well, about where the G is in Negev. It's about 18 miles south of Beersheba where he dug the well Rehoboth. And then he moves up to Beersheba in verse 22. And again, God appears to him. And God is going to reaffirm his presence. He says, I am the God of your father Abraham. Reaffirms his identity. I'm the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear. Do not fear what man can do to you. Do not fear the the circumstances. Do not be afraid for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. So he Reaffirms the blessing aspect of the Abrahamic covenant and the seed aspect of the Abrahamic covenant. So twice in this chapter, you have a reaffirmation of the Abrahamic covenant. And this is ultimately what gives Israel that right to the land in the Middle East. And so Isaac, like his father, builds an altar there, worships God, calls on the name of the Lord. That's what it means to worship God. And he pitched his tent there and they dug a well which is the well Beersheba, which means the well of the oath. It's a play on words for the word seven, uh, Shabbat, which is like Sabbath. And uh, But he re- re-digs the well, and it's obvious that God blesses him. So much so that Abimelech pays him another visit in the last part of the chapter, verses 26 to 35. Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahuzah, one of his friends or one of his uh uh, advisors, literally, and Phicol, the commander of his army. And Isaac's a little irritated at this after the way he's been treated. He says, why are you here? Why have you come to me? You hate me, and you sent me away from you. But they said, we've certainly seen that the Lord is with you, so we said, let there now be an oath between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you. You know, if we can't run him off, we better see if we can get our cut of the pie. So if we get, enter into a contract with him, maybe we'll get a little side blessing and by association and it won't be so bad. So uh, verse 29, that you will do us no harm since we've not touched you, since we've done nothing to you but good and have sent you away in peace. It's a little distortion of the truth, but uh, they're trying to make, put a good face on it. But they recognize the last Part of verse 29, you are now the blessed of the Lord. They recognize that he is the rightful heir to Abraham. And that's part of this whole point. Why is God blessing Abraham? I mean Isaac, why is he doing all this? Because he is demonstrating to all those around, in terms of human witnesses as well as angelic witnesses, that, Abra- that Isaac is the chosen seed and the blessing passes through Isaac. Now, the blessing is a key idea here we 've already seen that that has uh, got the two sons, uh, Jacob and Esau Jacob, has always uh, already bartered for the birthright from Esau and Esau just was such a uh, had no perspective whatsoever and Esau is the real villain of that I mean we see jacob's conniving in his, his manipulation, but the bad guy in the story is Esau's we saw last week with Hebrews 12, that he has no perspective on the value of his, of his birthright. But there's two elements, there's the birthright and there's the blessing, and the blessing becomes the key element in chapter uh, 27, so it's clear that the blessing belongs to Isaac. So, after they uh, enter into this contract, they have a feast which is typical of any contract, any covenant signing. What's the feast for the church in the church age related to the covenant? It's the Lord's table. See all the when when Abraham entered into covenant with God, there was eating. You know, that goes along with it it's a sign now that because of this legal contract there is there is fellowship and there is partnership and it, relationships are built on legal contracts and it's the legal contract that provides the parameters for stability within that legal relationship doesn't sound very romantic on valentine's day but but that's the core of a marriage it is a legal contract that provides the stability and basis for a marriage so that it can withstand whatever assaults are made against that marriage. When you start messing around with the definition of marriage or you get into a culture in paganism like we have today where people live together instead of getting married, then it no longer provides those legal protections, which is the foundation for all relationship. And we see that in Scripture, that even our relationship with God is based on what? It's based on a legal contract. And there is a legal uh, basis called justification by faith. So law is important because it provides that overall structure. So that's what is going on here. They sign the contract. They have a big feast. They eat and they drink. And then early the next morning, they, they woke up, swore an oath with one another, And Isaac sent them away. So it's a bilateral oath. It's not unconditional. Remember when uh, God entered into that contract with Abraham and they laid out the sacrifices, God put Abraham to sleep and you saw this, we had the smudge pots or the torches went through, went between the animals, indicating that God alone was binding himself to that contract. So it was a one-way contract, a unilateral contract. This is a two-way contract. So if either party broke it, that broke the contract. So they make an oath with one another. Isaac sent them away. They departed from him in peace. And it came to pass the same day that Isaac's servants came and told him about the well which they had dug and said, We found water. See, there's, it's not a coincidence in the plan of God that they found water on the same day. This is, again, a reaffirmation from God of his blessing to Isaac. So he called it Sheba, therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. And then we have just a closing note in the last two verses. When Esau was 40 years old, he took his wives Judith, the daughter of Beiri the Hittite, and Basimath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. Why? Because they are he's intermarrying with the pagans. He's acting like the Canaanites. And he is not following a path uh, where he shows concern for the things of God. So, Genesis chapter 26 is a reiteration of the same principles of spiritual growth that we saw with Abraham. That we face adversity through the faith rest drill. We face adversity with people by grace orientation and impersonal love for all mankind. He doesn't retaliate. He doesn't get involved in mental attitude sins. He doesn't get involved in trying to justify himself. Every time they attack him, he just moved to the next well until eventually God made it clear to the enemy that, that Isaac was the one who was being blessed. Uh, Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be encouraged by the ongoing principle that when we face adversity, that these are opportunities to trust you, opportunities to apply doctrine. These are opportunities that you have put into our lives that we might grow and advance to spiritual maturity. We pray that we might keep our focus on the eternal realities And not the temporal distractions. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.